0: Welcome to the final episode of our podcast series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, Dallas and I are here, and we're going to talk about Ephesians 6, uh, specifically the last half about the armor of God. I'm looking forward to this conversation, uh, but I also will acknowledge that we are in the Awakened Sanctuary, and there's a preschool and also some maybe landscaping happening outside, so you might hear some background noises, but that's okay. Um, It's life in Boness. And that's us. That's what we're doing. So, Dallas, why don't you open us up with uh, reading Ephesians chapter 6.
1: Sure. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 reads like this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me. So that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly, as I must speak. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus will tell you everything. He is a dear brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are, and to encourage your hearts. Peace be to the whole community and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Wow. That is the end of the book of Ephesians. That's profound. I love uh, grace be to all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus. That's cool. Undying. Um, That's pretty profound words from someone who's in prison, probably contemplating dying a lot. Uh, but, okay, there's a lot in this chapter. Um, I feel like last week, we or, or last uh, on chapter five, we ended with a long discussion about husbands and wives. And then it's weird that chapter six begins with, like, the same sort of teaching, but children and fathers and then enslaved people and their masters. And then it goes into this armor of God section and, I think we said this last time too, but I kind of wish that chapter 6 began in verse 10 and so that the husbands, wives, children, fathers, slaves, masters thing was all together in chapter 5. So we've already talked quite a bit about the husbands and wives thing. I don't, like, I think it's important that we acknowledge that Paul had what's called an imminent eschatology where he really believed the world was ending and, like, Jesus was coming back right away. Like, I don't think Paul... I don't, I don't think, I don't know, but I don't think Paul had an imagination that all of the apostles would die before Jesus returned. Like, I'm not sure, like, like so <clears throat> some people have criticized Paul, um, and on one hand, rightfully so, that he doesn't imagine social change. He doesn't imagine, like, maybe slavery is an inherently evil concept, and we should, as Christians, refuse to participate in it. It would be really great. <laughs> If Paul did that. And I I do think that the little book of Philemon essentially does do that. Like, I don't know if you've studied Philemon or if anyone listening has. It's a tiny little book written um, to a slave owner on behalf of a slave who has run away from his slave owner to come and be with Paul. And Paul, you know, legally, I think, in the Roman world would have to send the slave name Onesimus back <clears throat> And like, you're not supposed to run away, this is wrong. Um, but instead, Paul writes a letter to Philemon saying, "Charge my account for this man's freedom. Like, this is, you know, he shouldn't be your slave, he should actually be your brother and be sitting at your table with you and like a member of your house. But then he also tells this enslaved man Onesimus, you should return and be his brother." And like it's just really profound text. So <clears throat> whenever I read a, a text like this in Ephesians 6, where Paul's talking about slavery, I always read that through Philemon, which is important. I would recommend that if anyone really wanted to talk about that a lot. Because in the news, and I feel like even in the last couple of weeks, there was like some really weird, sketchy Southern Baptist guy, maybe on like Twitter, who was like, well, slavery is not wrong. Uh, even the Bible says that as long as the master is kind and benevolent, then it's good. And I was like, nope, nope, <laughs> nope, nope. <clears throat> There's no such thing as like, godly slavery or righteous slavery like we know that we can we don't even have to hesitate so then this text in scripture about slaves and masters we have to understand the context if the world was going to end in the next like month social change takes time paul's like listen submit to subvert because the end is near and that's a different way of living than 2,000 years later to read this and look at our own history of slavery, especially within the context of Christianity. And there's a lot there. But at the heart of this, one thing that we, got, I think, covered well in the husband's wife text is there is virtually nothing in Paul's writings. I want to say nothing in the New Testament. I want to say nothing in the Old Testament, though some people might come back at me with like some Deuteronomy text. But as Christians, as members uh, of the kingdom of God, There's no scripture that gives one group of people or type of person power over another. Paul isn't elevating anybody over anybody else. He's not elevating husbands above wives. He's not elevating fathers above children. He's certainly not elevating masters above slaves. Every one of these teachings, he's calling husbands down. He's calling fathers down. He's calling masters down, saying you should actually have a posture of humility and gentleness and love. And it would have been a profoundly it'd be a provocative teaching in his day even if it exists within the dominant culture which we no longer agree with I mean even like parents over children is different because we do think parents have like an authority over children because children need that to be safe like I can yell at my child do not run on the road grab them by the arm and pull them off the street I would do that to protect my child because I love my child even if it was like they were scared of it or something it's like oh you were just about to like put a fork in the socket and so I ran over and grabbed you it would be weird to be like no you have to like stop before they before you run across the road and pull your child away from the truck you know ask for the consent to come and little Raven, I'm coming to you. Like, like there, there is a sense of like it's different. Um, but I do think the way we understand parenting now versus in the ancient world, um, the way we understand like child psychology is like, yes, we do believe that, um, children it's in their own good to listen to their parents who are loving and good parents if 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 that is their situation. Um, but we also don't really believe in like corporal punishment for children and
1: yeah well that actually that's really good because that leads to something that i had thought of that um i read this in one of these commentaries that in jewish law the death penalty was authorized for children who dishonored their parents uh, and hellenistic judaism like would uphold this law so the obvious like cultural expectation would be that children should not want to like anger their fathers like don't make dad angry or like your dad. Yeah. I mean, that's blunt. But yeah, um, yet Paul's encouragement is that the father shouldn't make their children angry. And that- Isn't
0: that, wait a minute. So you're saying in Jewish law, the norm is don't make dad angry because yeah. you'll get the belt or you'll, you could be put to death. Yeah. And Paul doesn't uphold that kind of traditional way and say, children, remember, do not anger your father. It is within his right to discipline you to the point of death. suddenly like I I hadn't thought of that that becomes incredible that he says fathers do not provoke your children to anger I'm gonna have to think about that for a while and then I think of like the prodigal son Mm -hmm. story where the father had every right to be like absolutely not you you are not even worthy to come and be one of my servants like i could disown you i could like and yet the prodigal father (laughs) runs with love to that child like oh that's uh christ-like fatherhood that's
1: well and that's that's just it that's like we've talked about the three um kind of categories that paul talks about here of like husbands and wives uh fathers and their kids and then slaves and their masters and in each one of those cases Culturally speaking, like the husband, the father, the master all have a right to something, Mm -hmm. legally speaking. But Paul's saying, like, you can't, you shouldn't.
0: You give up those rights.
1: Like, you have it, but deny it. And instead, uh, like, flip the script. Like, be loving towards your children. Teach them the way of Christ, which is love, kindness, gentleness, all these things.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Right, because our supreme example is Jesus, who, though he was in his very nature God, did not consider that something to be exploited, but rather gave himself up completely, becoming obedient, even to death, even to death on a cross. Like, that's our model. It's always to not use the fact that you have the right or that you are entitled or that it would be socially acceptable or normative. You, you walk, run away from that. In fact, you should probably armor yourself every morning lest you fall into temptation to use that power you have access to that would be celebrated and normative in your culture Um, suddenly actually even just while we're talking about this like like before I was like oh dang how should we do this podcast I don't really think the children parents slave masters piece fits with like the armor of god piece because it fits more with like the husband's and wife piece and suddenly in this moment I'm like wait a minute maybe that's exactly it maybe it's like Husbands, although you technically have a right, and no one would think it's weird to treat your wife as if she's a child or a slave in your house, uh, don't do that. And fathers, and and, and, although he doesn't address husbands, uh, fathers, and slave owners first, which is also profound. He addresses wives first, children first, and enslaved people first. But... He's actually calling them to live in a way that is, like, radically countercultural. It's it's hard for me because, like, growing up in evangelicalism where, say, more of an egalitarian or, like, feminist stance, especially in, like, the media, seems to be more normative now, whereas, like, a traditional <clears throat> complementarian, like, Christian patriarchy house is less dominant. I would suspect it is still the dominant way, um, just not in, like, Hollywood, movie, in, like, mainstream media but i've heard people be like yeah paul's calling us to live a very subversive and difficult way the way of patriarchy and it's hard and the world is rejecting it more and more and more but this is what god's called us to and it's the hard thing i'm like oh no 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 child (laughs) that was the normal dominant thing in paul's day and he was actually calling us away from that but walking away from what's normative in your culture walking away from the way you grew up the way it was modeled for you, the way you saw that your parents and your grandparents did it, walking away from that is not easy. Like sometimes we talk about it of like, oh, it's too bad those really bad people do it that way. But we're Christian and we don't do it that way. But I really think when we, when we read that the challenge set before us in, in the scriptures, um, we're being called to a, a lifestyle that is extremely difficult. And then suddenly the armor of God text is the most brilliant sort of summary of the whole thing because <clears throat> to step out, like it's like, I often use the metaphor of like a river, like you're kind of floating down the flow of like the dominant narrative, like the easy way, this is how it, how it is, this is what everybody does, this is the the cultural script that we all follow to like, I think of like a fish. I don't know what, this is just a little insight into my weird imagination. Like I think of like a salmon desperately swimming upstream and then you can see them like try and jump up a waterfall and it looks so unnatural like you'd want to just swim down with the river but they're just scurrying to get up over that waterfall and swim the other direction it takes so much work i imagine like another river flowing the opposite direction right beside that river which is like impossible (laughs) with continental divides and whatnot but swimming desperately upstream and then like kind of jumping out into the other stream and uh It's going to be so hard and and dangerous and risky. And so the conclusion becomes, so then put on the armor of God. Not armor. Like, I guess I'll just say, like, we could really mess this up if we're not careful. Because you have husbands, fathers, masters, military. That is a lethal mix, right? That is like... supreme. That, that's like the story of Rome. That's the story of, of empire is the military. The military commander is the husband and is the father and is the master. So watch out, wives, children, slaves, because the military is in your bed. Like, holy, this is weird. But if you imagine that Paul's going the opposite direction, He's dismantling kind of Christian patriarchy. He's dismantling parents who have the right to kill their children. And he's dismantling the idea that masters also have the right. Like like I think in in the Old Testament, a master has the right to execute their slave. A husband has the right to execute his wife. And the father has the right to execute. So the armor of God text could, if you're reading it irresponsibly and without critical thought, this could just be such a dangerous text, you know, husband, father, master, military. But instead, it's walking away from that, and now you're going to need to put on an, an armor. Not It's not called the military of God. <laughs> it's called the armor of God, and it's in order to – before you can even put on armor, you have to acknowledge a weakness, a vulnerability. You need protection. It's not an armor of God. It's the protection of God against – and it's not against flesh and blood. We're, we're about to unpack that here, I imagine. It's not protection against feminism, <laughs> against, uh, I don't know, attachment parenting. <clears throat> um, it's armor against all the forces at work in this world that wants patriarchy and wants military and wants slavery. And it's armor against the ways of the world. So, that this mustard seed, this tiny kingdom, this, you know, little uh, faith tradition that follows a lamb when the rest of the world wants a lion, you need an armor to keep your heart soft so that you could walk the way of Jesus. When if you have access to it, it would be way easier to walk the way of Caesar. And so, Anyway, I'm just having a minute, bit of a moment. It's sort of embarrassing that I have never thought of this before. The armor of God text actually makes perfect sense to come right after this, these hierarchy texts. I don't, do you do you agree? To see the connection?
1: Yeah, I think the dominant way of understanding, or at least from like the evangelical way that I grew up of understanding the whole armor of God text is like we think about it. You know, you read um, verse 12, for our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, the authorities, powers, principalities. Um, and we we relate all that to like, oh, that's Satan. Satan is, um, he's doing all these things that want to hurt us. So let's put on this like spiritual armor that will protect us from that. Um, but as we've been going through Ephesians, I was even thinking about this last time, but it's actually a lot more as we've been discussing political and it's a lot more counter-cultural and it makes sense like if you think about this being a letter from Paul to a whole group of Christians um and saying you know, like like the reality of their world was it was dangerous to be a Christian it was dangerous to subvert the cultural norms um so obviously the protection you want is not actually against some just like i don't know some random spiritual thing yes it is spiritual mm-hmm, but it mm-hmm. is like there's a very real and tangible sense to this for them that mm-hmm. even we, we were saying before this, we don't fully understand mm-hmm. in our context
0: mm-hmm. in, here, like right.
1: in Canada or in, in the West. It's, uh, you even said, like, we don't have to think about it because for us, people who like put on armor is like the US military, which it's like other people that are mm-hmm. not really in our,
0: in our media, they're always presented as the good mm-hmm.
1: guy. Yeah, they are the good guys, right? Um, but if you went to a, another culture where uh, I can't remember the example that you used before, but um, where maybe the military threat is a little more real mm-hmm. and there's maybe uh, as a war-torn country, probably makes a little bit more sense to read this mm-hmm. and, uh, and they would pick up on something that we can't quite get out of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I was researching that in, so in the Roman world in the first century, like the people receiving this letter... Like military was a way of life. War was a way of life. The Romans were uh, a very militaristic people, a nation. So I read that Roman aristocracy trained for war from adolescence. Like it was like you you grow if you're born like kind of a upper class member of the Roman Empire, you you train for war. Like being a a warrior is like the pride. Like um. that's like the pride of of Rome and I I read that the Romans would wage war every spring just because they're expanding their empire like conquer dominate and then they also would like wage war like um I read that in Jerusalem Judea so this is not very close to Ephesus but they would be familiar with this no doubt um because this would be true of all different areas in the Roman empire that had like different people groups who weren't Roman but um So in Jerusalem, every year at Passover, the Roman guard, Roman military would flood the streets for that entire festival, which would last like more than a week because you have Passover and Pentecost um, close together there. But um, because the Passover was often when the Romans anticipated rebellion or insurrection, you'd have like some young, uh, passionate, zealous uh, Jewish men would rebel and resist because the Passover you have all of the Jewish people in the Roman world coming to Jerusalem for Passover because you have to come to the temple and the Passover event itself is remembering when Moses freed God's oppressed people from the evil militaristic Egypt. So it is a, a, a an emancipation story. It's a ceremony around liberation. That's what Passover essentially is. So Passover would be the perfect time because everyone's all of a sudden together. So suddenly the city is bursting with people who are all singing songs and praying and remembering liberation. It's like the perfect soil to grow insurrection. And even in Jesus's lifetime, there were events where um, people kind of claiming to be a messiah or claiming to be this like important person of a Moses figure rises up and then the Romans are there and they crucify hundreds of Jewish men on Passover weekend. Like it it was not like, so it makes perfect sense that Jesus is crucified during Passover and the, that, that Pilate is even there because Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem. Um, He lives in like Caesarea, but he would come for Passover every year just to keep everybody, you know, in line. And so like war was a way of life. having militaristic strength was everything to the romans so i feel like people receiving this letter imagine somebody wearing armor and you just think of the roman the roman military and so it's just really profound that paul's like okay so as christians um and this is largely a gentile community um we don't know how many of them would have been roman citizens uh most of them aren't jewish right because this is mostly written to gentiles um but like their understanding of war is so different than you and I I've never in my life seen. No, I don't know. Like like have I ever, like have you ever just been around suddenly? Like, like have you ever had like tank a tank drive by? No, I think I've seen it in film and it just looked terrifying. Like this immovable force. Yeah. Like, I guess I've seen like maybe at like a protest, like riot police, but like, if you see, At like, most, a lineup of riot police and riot gear, like, that...
1: But even, simple. too, like, in Canada, I remember being a kid and asking my dad, like, do we even have, like, a military-type thing? Because it's you'd see it all in the news or in movies, mm-hmm. um, but you wouldn't really see it, like, I you don't know, growing up in Calgary, yeah, same thing. Like, you don't really see any of that. So it's such a, a strange concept mm-hmm. for us.
0: Yeah, and in our, our world's so interesting because... I don't see war as in like soldiers. I I don't, in my imagination as a white Canadian, I don't have an imagination that soldiers protect me because I don't imagine myself as being vulnerable. I've never had this like the uh, Chinese, the Russians, I don't know, are like about to invade and bombs are going to be dropped. I remember around 9-11, which you were probably like three years old. I was four,
1: yeah. I remember it.
0: So I was like 13 or 14 and my mom wouldn't let us go to like the shopping mall or any big places at that time because I guess we felt that Calgary was dangerously close to New York. And if terrorism, you know, violent acts were <clears throat> being perpetrated against innocent Americans, this was the the narrative of my conservative household in 2001, um, Then that was going to come to us, and Calgary was like a big city in Calgary. So they were afraid of, like, anthrax or suicide bombers or jets being flown into Chinook Mall. I feel like in the early 2000s, Chinook Center was, like, the biggest shopping mall in Canada or something. It was a big deal. Makes sense, yeah. Um, And so – there was like a fear in my family of being there because that would be like the world trade center i don't know the more i say this out loud for the first time in 20 years i'm like yeah it actually is very strange but that was kind of how we thought it was like it was pretty normal to think that way back then yeah but like that's the only time in my life where it was ever like i'm afraid of getting hurt because of someone else's war i'm afraid and it was like a fear of like being on an airplane or something um that's that's the closest in my life i ever came to like war feeling imminent but interestingly I have never been in danger of that I I could go to the I could have gone to the mall every day and I would have been fine um and sadly the opposite you know like a lot of wars began after that where a lot of civilians in The Middle East lost their life like like they experienced the very real things my parents were afraid of for me and so I understood growing up war was not something that I was going to experience living here but war our military our military didn't come to Calgary and protect innocent Calgarians from the evil other but our military went out to the evil like like there's a I feel like and Dallas you said something really brilliant like this just before we started recording that like this is why reading the Bible in a diverse community is so important. Like, not just a diverse community like here in Buenos, but even like globally. Like, I wonder what the armor of God text feels like right now for um, Christian people in Afghanistan. Are you putting on the armor of God so that we could show the world that we are the most powerful military in existence? Bow now or bow later. Submit or die. Like, is that what we're putting on our armor for? That God's army is bigger than the army of the Taliban, you know, you know, like this is kind of part of our Western imagination probably, but I'm not sure that's what Paul's doing. I don't think he's telling us to um, prepare for war and and it's not a call to arms. It's, uh, I think of Jesus's words in like Luke 14, where he says, fear not little flock for it is your father's great pleasure to give you the kingdom. But then the kingdom is like a mustard seed. The kingdom is like this, this small, you know, consider the lilies and the ravens. Do not worry about what you eat or what you will wear. Like, it's not a call mm-hmm. to arms. It's you are, are sheep and there are, you need, you're, you're weak and you're small and you're going to choose willingly to be the least of all people. Um, Peter Rawlings would call it the, the trash of the world. You are choosing to become the least so put on the armor of god (laughs) i I don't know
1: yeah it just makes me i I won't go too far into it for the sake of the argument but like a certain uh leader south of our border uh, dealing with the afghanistan whole thing and the controversy of are we sending people in or not are Mm -hmm. we involving ourselves in that matter Mm -hmm. like I'm not going to dive into that too deeply, but it's just interesting how, I don't know, even in the past, in my life, the 24 years I've been on this planet, um, the different political agendas and ideas behind how we get involved in these wars and, uh, or the different conflicts throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And it's all about power and might. Mm -hmm. And yet, like I, I, as we've been talking, I think back to uh, Jesus's life and ministry and, he, he subverts all of that. Like the Jewish people anticipated this Messiah who would come and just rule and free them from all this captivity. And they'd be the ones who are lifted up into like this high
0: power mm-hmm. and authority.
1: Mm-hmm. Jesus comes as this lowly guy.
0: Yeah, that's right. And
1: is like Peter, who's this big fighter and wants to like resist all these things and draws a sword. And Jesus is like, nope i know not my way
0: i know like on the night of his arrest he heals yeah. the the yeah. quote-unquote military who's come to capture him mm-hmm. he heals them from the the militaristic impulse of his own people like of, of peter like oh, holy moly i don't there's something that that's profound if you live by the sword you die by the sword i think it's uh it's a very, very powerful text. And I think it also like even when you were talking there, Dallas, about South of the Border and like the war in Afghanistan, it it's also like we can see how like insidious this idea of like the Christian nation is, of like like even when we say like we, like should we, it's like for a long time we imagined like white people in the West as the Christians. <laughs> and i'm not even an american i i don't even i've only been to the usa like a handful of times and usually it was like a stopover on, in denver on my way to brazil for a mission trip <laughs> but um we imagine ourselves as being the same like like i often talk about american politics and i say we but like, wait why do i as a canadian say we is it because we're like allies in war or is it because we're white christians I don't know. I, I have to like ask myself that all the time of like...
1: Probably a bit of both. Is
0: it that like we should read the armor of God and then armor up and go fight in Afghanistan? Like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. There are a lot of Christian people in Afghanistan and there are like, there's absolutely nothing about like American militarism that should be affiliated with like Christianity. I don't know. Like it's it's really interesting. I love kind of unpacking the history of interpretation In my context, these kind of seemingly militaristic texts, because I actually remember preparing an article or or, or preparing a lecture when I first started teaching Rise and Fall, uh, Joshua Judges, Samuel Kings, because a lot of people, when they hear I teach the Old Testament, are really interested in the book of Joshua and like genocide. A lot of people are curious about the book of Joshua. You know, how could you like how could a loving God condone like genocide and like all the questions around Joshua, right? it's like a very question. It's a very good question. It's a very important question. Um, but when you actually look at the laws in like Deuteronomy and Exodus and Chronicles about militarism and the Old Testament, we, we see that um, God's design for God's people in the Old Testament is that they would never have a military. They're, they're not allowed to have a standing army. In fact, like that's one of the criticisms against David and Solomon. Like Saul didn't do military conscription. Um, like, so they're not allowed, like like the Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, they're like, here's the rules for when you come into the land and become your own nation. No army, no soldiers, no boot camp, no training. Like, you can't have, like, a, a group of people who are the soldiers. If there is a battle, people come voluntarily and they have not been trained. You're also not allowed to procure weapons of mass destruction, which in this very ancient context is like Egyptian horses, chariots, um, you know, so not atomic bombs and tanks and all sorts of wild technology we have today that I don't understand. Um, So so they're not allowed that. They're not allowed weapons of mass destruction. And like their preparation for war was never like we need to train for months and, and, and drink a lot of protein shakes and work out and make sure that we're really strong and buff. And when people see us, they just like quiver with fear. It's often like the priests will go forward holding the Ark of the Covenant and they will blow on the ram's horn. And that's the, that's the plan. That's the strategy. We'll march around the city seven times. Uh, like, like there's always this kind of like <clears throat> vision for not, not, no human violence. I mean, it's, it's complicated, but the Bible does not uh, present a, like a militaristic vision for God's people at all. So like e- even in Joshua, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, living on nothing but manna. These are not strong people. I don't know. These are not fearsome people. They're landless wanderers um, who've been struggling, who've been suffering. Um, and then they enter an incredibly fortified nation. And uh, clearly, like from, from a human perspective, um, Joshua and those, those folks in his um, quote unquote army won't stand a chance against the, the Canaanites. And so the vision is not a militaristic people of God who have the world's best armor and the world's best weapons.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, even as we're about to see in our next series, when they go to actually see the land, most of them are like terrified.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What? We can't fight them.
0: Th- we're like grasshoppers to yeah. them.
1: And they probably were. They like Literally. And, and the, the response is not, Look how strong and tough we are. It's like, no, we've got God,
0: right? And he doesn't say, "Well, men, uh, let's all go out and train and yeah." It, it, they don't even eat meat. Like <laughs> they don't have what, what? What weapons do they have? I, I also think like the the David and Goliath story, like shepherd boy David, before David eventually became a bloodthirsty war hero, yeah. which was not praised or celebrated especially by god but before that when he was just this little boy like the younger brother the youngest brother of jesse this like weak boy that jesse didn't even consider to be like a real person yet when when um samuel came to anoint the next king he goes and fights against goliath so you have the image of this this little boy with no armor and nothing but a stone and a slingshot and the great mighty goliath who has the helmet and the breastplate and the shield and everybody trembles with fear before Goliath I think that story is important because God is always calling us to be the little shepherd boy never to be mighty Goliath so the armor of God is profound because it's it's a metaphor we never actually put on a helmet or a breastplate or uh, shoes and a belt he's like wear the same armor king uh, a shepherd boy David was wearing Well, David had no armor. He was extremely vulnerable. David was so small that he couldn't even fit into Saul's armor. Um, Yeah, that's the armor that you're going to wear. Truth, justice, mercy, peace, salvation, and the word of God. It it, it really suddenly is like, well, this armor is going to be absolutely useless if the Romans come and shut down our church service. Not that they would call it a church service back then. And I almost hear Paul being like, yes, good, exactly. You're getting it. you're 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 getting it you will be vulnerable and yet if you put on the whole armor of god uh the world the world will not um what's the phrase what does jesus say do not be fearful of the world for i have conquered the world like you may be pressed but not crushed persecuted but not abandoned it's a song I used to sing in camp a lot. Yep, yeah, I you know it. Go, okay, yep. well, it was a long time ago, but can
1: still sing it every summer.
0: Yeah. So, what do you think, Daz? Let's talk about the actual like elements of this armor. Mm. What do you notice?
1: It just goes back to what I said before, where like I always thought of it in a um, spiritual spiritual sense. Mm-hmm. Not a this is like a legitimate like protection against very real threats for people.
0: Mm-hmm. Like One thing I, I tried to say is like, it is political. There is a time to go to Pharaoh and say, I will stand against your evil ways. Um, but it's a spiritual battle. Um, and, and we absolutely pray and depend on, on, on God and, and trust that there's even more going on than just Moses versus Pharaoh. There's also Yahweh versus the Egyptian gods. And so it is political and it's spiritual. It's not one or the other and and because i grew up in a world and i imagine most awakeners did as well where we overemphasize the spiritual aspect and completely dismiss the political then sometimes i lean in this context more towards the political to balance us out not to get rid of the spiritual
1: yeah i i think that that balance is a really good point because i think we also in the evangelical world also overemphasize the the personal
0: mm, exactly
1: over yeah. the like like I put on, I don't know if you ever had this as a kid that like somebody would teach you like, oh, every morning you got to like wake up and put on your armor yeah. or something like yeah, that. Totally. Or like at camp, I don't know, somebody would teach that. And it's it's not that that's like wrong, it's it's just we overemphasize that side of things and not the, the communal aspect of their legitimate forces against mm-hmm. that want to destroy what the way of Jesus stands for.
0: That's right, yeah. Yeah, and and it's as a community, like, wouldn't it be different if we read this as the church is one body? We're one body. We have one head. Mm. We have one pair of feet and pair of hands. And so as a a community called Awaken in Bonass, um, the helmet of our salvation, easy. None of us have a head. Jesus is the head. Jesus is our salvation. Brilliant. Uh, On our unified feet. We walk the way of peace, peace and shalom, same word, a Hebrew word, shalom, Greek word, arene, peace and shalom, same word. We walk as one, the walk of peace in Bonas. We have um, one, you know, breastplate, justice, righteousness. Uh, Like, like this is the one weapon, the sword (laughs) of the spirit and one set of armor that we wear as one body, not like individuals putting on the armor every morning. I mean, obviously, we we do exist as individuals, but we strive to be radically joined together as one new people in the blood and body of Jesus. So, yeah, I think, um, I don't know, when when you were growing up, like, what did you learn about, so what do we have? We have, um, first is the belt of truth around your waist. Any thoughts on that?
1: belt of truth uh childhood dallas would I thought of um probably just and see that one doesn't even get expanded upon really it's just like the truth is jesus jesus i am the way the truth and the life
0: ah uh, okay so like objective truth versus subjective yeah. truth or I, I would have heard it as like yeah don't lie like mm, yeah. you always have to tell the truth no matter what sure and the belt you know truth is the belt holds the whole thing together so truth is important <clears throat> i think
1: be honest. Yeah. Young yeah.
0: David maybe had a belt where he had carved the latin word for truth into it veritas i think which is kind of cool it's very sweet and it's and it's true like none of this is wrong right you should tell the truth and we should stand for what's true and, and not just um what's true for me isn't true for you like well it's uh sometimes we do that as like well it's okay for me to divorce my spouse. that's my truth that's my truth and and, and, okay yeah i I understand why we have problems with that way of being but sometimes we do like well i don't support slavery it's like oh yes you do (laughs) the truth is you do (laughs) we do well you know like like i think of where my laptop came from or my clothing or the mic that i'm speaking into the truth is we do and if we were to talk about that truth more publicly whoo ah so there is like different layers like this word truth could it's complex you can unpack it a lot and be like oh the truth or like we talked last time about like churches that like hide scandals oh yeah and so it's like if it's true like what's true in the dark is true in the light like i feel like that's what nathan said to corrupted king david was like you did something secretly and privately i.e took bathsheba and murdered uriah and you did it all secretly on the dl um but it has not been a secret to God. And, and then what eventually comes around to David, which is horrible in, in many other different ways, but is that publicly the same thing happens to his wives and his children and his... Yeah, like there's a sense of like, if it's true in the dark, it's true in the light. We can't hide that. We can't cover that. And the church can be a truth-telling community. We can tell the truth about the world and not hide from the truth of <clears throat> corruption and... You know, it's a lot. But it's not just like, when mom says who ate the last cookie, you should tell the truth. It was me. <laughs> you should tell the truth, but it's supposed to be challenging. I just read this quote recently that I, I suspect maybe lots of people have heard, but I hadn't heard of it before, that um, our faith, like the, the Christian faith, is meant to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted.
1: Oh, yeah, I, I feel like I've read that before. Yeah,
0: I feel uh, – anyway, I, and it was like, as the old saying goes. I was like, oh, a new old saying for me. But <laughs> this text should make us uncomfortable if, in, in the ways that we're comfortable and, and comfort us in the ways we feel vulnerable and afflicted. And so, so okay, we have this belt of truth. <clears throat> and the breastplate of righteousness. Um, we've talked about this before, I think. The, the word righteousness – righteous like we only I often only hear that in a negative way now like that guy's so Mm self-righteous instead of like what is like like righteousness I feel like personal morality piety like you're righteous like you make right choices you you live rightly and we sometimes um contrast especially when you talk about like liberals versus conservatives righteousness um versus justice So you could have a conservative church that's very concerned with righteousness and and purity and morality, and then a more liberal church that's not really concerned with that. You know, they got some elders who've been divorced. They got the pastor smokes, like whatever. But they really care about justice. And so, great. Check. Righteousness over here in this part of town and justice here. And we kind of put them against each other. But I learned, um, interestingly, so justice and righteousness always go hand in hand, especially in the book of Isaiah, um, that God... There's even passages in Isaiah about like the throne that God sits on is justice and righteousness. Like these are the two hand in hand. And then what's mind blowing is the Greek word that they use to translate justice and righteousness. It's the same word. There isn't a separate Greek word for righteousness as justice. So everywhere in the New Testament, you see the word righteous. The English translators have chosen to put righteousness there. They could have put justice. So I think some English translations here call it a breastplate of justice. So then you have tell the truth about the world and then put on the breastplate of justice. Whew. Or you know what I mean? Like there's layers to this. I think it's not one or the other. Righteousness and justice must always go together. To be truly righteous, um, justice would flow like a river.
1: I was trying to see if there's like any, or think if there's any anything powerful to think about the fact that it's Righteousness is attributed, or justice, righteousness, whatever you want it to say, um, is attributed to the breastplate. Like, I'm thinking about the specific item of a breastplate mm-hmm. that's covering, like, your most vital organ, your heart.
0: Mm-hmm. That's,
1: that's your life source.
0: No, this is a, a weird comparison that is only like, like, when you wear, like, a police officer mm-hmm. in yep. open duty, is that, I don't know the term, but they just wear a bulletproof vest yep. and a helmet. Probably. But that, that's like, okay, good. Your head and your heart, you're good. Like your, If you got the, the vest on and a helmet on, you could, you could take a shot in the arm. You could probably take a shot in the knee. It would hurt like crazy, and you'd have to like be in recovery for a while. But you're right. The helmet and the breastplate are sort of <clears throat> the, the two essentials. And uh, I never thought of that, Dallas. That's profound. The breastplate is protecting your, your essential organs. Um, and then your shoes for your feet. Um, I grew up hearing it like your shoes represent peace, you know, your breastplate represents righteousness, and then your belt is truth. But here it's like, you know, you put shoes on your feet, whatever shoes you have to put on to make you ready to proclaim the good news of peace. So the shoes, it's not the shoes of peace necessarily. It's like, but make sure you're wearing whatever shoes you have to put on so that you are ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. And that kind of reminds me of that text. Um, is it in Isaiah? I hope it is. Uh, How beautiful on mountains are the feet of those who bring good news.
1: I've heard that. Isaiah
0: 52. Oh, see, crashed it. There you go. <clears throat> yeah. Isaiah 52. How beautiful on mountains are the feet of those who bring. Oh, oh, this is exactly Isaiah 52 verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And I've heard this presented as like in a war, like let's say you live in a tiny village and you're like an elder or like, like elderly or, or like a woman. <clears throat> the soldiers go off to fight a war. Let's say this is like Bonas is fighting against Airdrie. I'm trying to just like bring this local. It's going to take them like two full days to march to Airdrie and then there's going to be a war. How, how anxious would it be to be left in Bonas? All of the strong warriors are gone. They're fighting a war. If they lose the war, all of the strong warriors from Airdrie, in this example, are gonna come to Bones and then claim us, conquer us. So you're waiting for probably like a week in this example Who's going to come back? you don't even know how that, like you have all these stories in the Old Testament of like Eli sitting there anxiously waiting and then someone comes running over the hill and it's like, what news do you bring? And this man's all kind of covered in dirt and blood and you don't know, Is he going to say, we won, victory is ours, our God reigns. Or is he going to say, run, <laughs> run for the hills. And so this idea of how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Um, we won. Uh, And and it's not good news uh, the enemy is dead, necessarily. It's good news um, your God reigns. And and I love that it's the good news of peace, meaning the war is over. When I think of peace in my kind of cultural context, I think of like tranquility and serenity. Like, ah, peace. Like a scented candle called peace. An essential oil blend in my nebulizer called peaceful home. Ah, peace. But for the majority world, peace is like, there's no war. <laughs> the absence of war, the absence of, uh, you know. So so. we as a church put on our shoes. We, the church, not the individual, the church is the beautiful feet on the mountain proclaiming the gospel. That's what good news means. Peace. Which is not a, a the, the good news is not we're going to win the war because we have the strongest military. The good news is um. The war has already, that's what the book of Revelation is about. When we get ready to go to battle, Jesus shows up already covered in blood. It's his own blood. And it's, he says, oh, I already won. It's done. The war's done. I won on the cross. It's not uh, militaristic. But I really love this idea of like, we wear the shoes of peace. We get to be, uh, we are called not get to be. It's a difficult calling. The beautiful feet on mountains that proclaim peace. In a world always bent on war. Yeah. It's wild. Um, And then our shield of faith and our helmet of salvation and our sword of the spirit, which is the word of God.
1: I think um, this was an interesting question posed by the great John Coutts in a theology class. He's like, when you talk about the word of God, what do you actually mean? Mm. There's many different levels of that. Like word of God is like, well, it's the scriptures Um, that's one, but also like Jesus is the word of God. Um, so we just had like a whole class on that. I don't think it was just discussing the different possibilities. So when you read this, like the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, well, what kind of word do we mean here?
0: Right. Is it Jesus is our sword or is it the Bible? Like a sword drill, a sword drill, do you use sword drills at camp or a sword drill is like a Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I'm so glad you brought that up because I hadn't thought of that. What is the word of God? Is it the Bible? Is it Jesus? Or the prophetic word? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the prophets, thus saith the Lord. The, yeah, thus saith the Lord yeah. and then they,
1: The preached word. Yeah. Like there's differences there. But that's where I think potentially um, in the past, this could have been used in a irresponsible manner because you could use the, oh, the sword of the spirit, the word of the Lord or the word of God. Okay, the Bible is our weapon. Mm-hmm. Well, that can be that could be taken in some very dangerous directions. It has been mm-hmm. where people used uh, various parts of scripture as a, as a weapon against people. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah. I don't know. I'm just looking at, um in the book of revelation, uh, there's this description. Oh yeah. So <clears throat> listen to this for like militaristic and word of God language and sword language. This is revelation 19 oh okay yeah do you know what I'm gonna say
1: Uh, like a general idea I don't know it word for word it just
0: has a ton of language from Ephesians 6 here then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse its rider is called faithful and true faithfulness truth and in righteousness he judges and makes war His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and later you learn it's his own blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies of heaven wearing fine linen were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword and I think uh, I mean that's a whole other podcast maybe but like reading the book of Revelation literally. is like, okay, do we really believe Jesus is going to come out of heaven riding a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth? And every time he, like, turns his head left and right, he just, like, slays the nations. It's
1: a pretty weird picture. It is
0: weird. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people who do take it literally. Yeah. Those same people might not take the Sermon on the Mount literally. But isn't it interesting? <laughs> Sorry, was that, was that shady? <laughs> Sorry.
1: It's just like the best call out of so many people well but oh my
0: i mean i'm not trying to call anyone out i'm saying like we don't take the sermon on the mount literally but we take the, the white horse and the sword mouth literally
1: i know but it sounds like you're just like because that's the big critique is that people don't take the sermon on the mount seriously enough mm-hmm. but we're like oh revelation that's those are real events
0: yeah it's coming but also, isn't it interesting that the Sermon on the Mount... Course, oh, I you, can, you have my permission to keep it. Really? Yeah. The Sermon on the Mount is a sword. That's why we don't take it literally. Because it cuts us. It cuts us down. It cuts down... You're not allowed to judge. You're not allowed to uh, pray in public. You're not allowed to like boast of your good works. You're not... Like, holy. You're not allowed to like look with lust at people. You're not allowed to... Ah, uh, yeah, right. I don't think he actually thinks we should cut off our hands and pluck out our eyes. I don't think... Right, because this word of Jesus on on the mount is a piercing word. It is sharp. It's striking us down in terms of the part of us that wants to dominate and conquer and, you know, get more and more and more. It's cutting us down, so we don't take it literally. But when we imagine Jesus coming on a white horse to kill all of our enemies, Mm -hmm. we're like, oh, watch out. It was a red moon this month. It's probably coming now. And so I think the word of God – is more um, the Sermon on the Mount than a literal sword to like kill people, mm. but the sword, the Word of God, and I think in Hebrews four even it says the Word of God is a double-edged sword mm-hmm. which pierces through bone and marrow. It it it, it exposes the truth, <clears throat> and so the Word of God is is it. We don't get like like I I feel like you could take this text and argue that it is absolutely un. Christian or anti-Christian, and I'm saying here you could. I'm not going to be the one that does that. I'm saying you could interpret this text to say that war is anti-Christian. A Christian could never be in the military. A Christian could never, never um, carry a weapon. Could never put on a bulletproof vest. Like, like you could read it as like this is a very anti-military text. The only armor you get is truth, uh, justice and righteousness, peace, and faith. And the only weapon that you carry is the word of God. So if you have all of those things, then fear not, little flock. (laughs) Like, I I don't know. I I don't imagine um, everybody would agree with that interpretation on this part of the world. But imagine being a vulnerable person in a war-torn land um, that's always, your people are always on the losing side you're now a refugee in a refugee camp and then you read this it's like oh god did it and and like it kind of reminds me of and i know i I didn't really plan to do like a, a quick walking tour through the entire old testament with a little stopover in revelation but in deuteronomy 7 it's one of my favorite verses in the bible um God says, uh, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, but it was because you were the least of all people. He's like, I'm on the side of those most vulnerable. I'm I'm not, it's not a vision of, of military, it's a vision of, Justice, righteousness, peace, goodness. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> and so then ultimately I like that in verse 18 he says, so pray in the spirit at all times and keep alert and always persevere because this is a, a dangerous life to live, not in Egypt but in the wilderness.
1: One of the – this might – um Maybe you have a thought on this. I was reading in some commentary that verse eighteen, the um, uh, that pray in the spirit at all times and every prayer and supplication, that those verbs are um, participles, hmm. and so I, actually the ESV kind of gets it. Um, so like a good way to translate that v- verb is to say praying like almost like by praying so mm-hmm. it's like um so the sword of the spirit which is the word of god praying at all times in the spirit like by praying at all times in the spirit mm-hmm. with all prayer and supplication
0: mm-hmm. so
1: it's um it's it's like really connected with this whole i don't know where the the clause begins and ends but this whole thing of the armor of god like verse 10 through 19 basically or 18. <clears throat> Like, like the word. verbs in verse 18 are connecting back to all this. It's like, put on all of this stuff, praying in the spirit mm-hmm. um, at all times mm-hmm. in every prayer and supplication. Yeah, that's right. Like, does that make sense?
0: No, yeah. It's really brilliant, actually. I didn't know. I didn't look at the Greek. So you have finally be strong in the Lord, and that's probably an imperative. Be strong. Yes, it is. And then the end of it is praying in the spirit at all times.
1: Yeah, so it's probably reflexing. Reflecting back on that. It's
0: really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so then I guess it it is a very spiritual text, even if it is very uh, on the ground and tangible and somewhat political.
1: The two are connected.
0: But whether it's spiritual or political, our enemy is not the other person. Mm-hmm. That's got to be core to the heart of the whole book of Ephesians. We do not armor up against other people. We're not afraid of other people. We're not protecting our stuff from other people. We're not afraid. Um, our battle is not Jew and Gentile. It's not male, female, slave-free, fathers and children and masters and slaves. The, that, that That's not. In fact, our struggle now is against anything that would seek to divide us. Mm-hmm so, our our battle can't be against flesh and blood. It's not against the uh, American military. It's against that um, that very real you know, cosmic power that desires to corrupt us such that we think military and you know what I mean, like it's not our battle isn't against human people, but it it's against um it's against human ideas uh, which are shaped in the imagination of the darkest forces, right? Like the the dark spirit forces in the heavenly places, or as Paul says, um, uh, the wiles of the devil. Um, The wiles of the devil in the early Genesis stories put put clothing on Adam and Eve that they would hide from one another.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It separated them clothing becomes like armor protect myself from you because you might hurt me that's what the forces of darkness do is they they want to divide us and, and so the, the mission of Jesus I'm thinking Colossians um reconciliation of all things to the father and um in Ephesians even that he breaks down all the dividing walls of hostility between us so we don't put on armor to protect ourselves from other people we put on armor to protect ourselves from anything that would divide us Uh, we and other people. Like, there is no longer us versus them. Um, So what is it? We put on the armor of God to protect our hearts from anything that would harden us. We put on the armor of God to protect ourselves from anything that would cause us to dehumanize another. Uh, We put on the armor of God to protect ourselves from anything that would cause us to turn our backs on our enemy. We always stand open and towards the enemy, loving our enemy, praying for our enemy, eating the body and blood of Jesus with our enemy until we are one in the joint. We are joined together in Jesus. I don't know. You had a quote, I think, from a commentary on like, what do we do now? Like, okay, this is Ephesians. What do we do? What's our response?
1: Yeah. So Alan... Verhey and Joseph Harvard, I think that's how you say their names, in their commentary. um, For the conclusion, they say, if we are to keep Paul's vision alive, Paul's vision of leading a life worthy of the call to which we have been called, uh, if we are to live lives worthy of the gospel, we need to make a place for those who are different. We will need to listen to those Christians who are in another place and culture. We need them to be most properly ourselves. To live lives worthy of this gospel, worthy of this calling, is still to undertake an an adventure of love, in a world of hostility, of forgiveness, in a world of holding a grudge, of faithfulness, in a world of treachery, of speaking the truth, in a world of spin and propaganda, of hospitality to those the culture shuns and neglects, of making peace and doing justice in a culture of racism and nationalism Hmm.
0: wow wild to live a life worthy of the calling is to venture into love boom that's amazing
1: i wanted to point out too that the end of this verse 23 and 4 peace to the whole community grace be with you reflects right back on chapter one the very beginning grace and peace to you full circle grace and peace to the community the whole community
0: I mean you got all the words there he says uh peace be to to you the whole community and love with faith from god the father and the lord jesus christ grace be with all who have an undying love for our lord jesus christ i've really enjoyed going through ephesians this me summer too. it's been really great and uh thank you to our listeners uh, tammy winterfield wrote me a message last night that she's really really enjoyed this podcast so
1: really that's so good
0: yeah it really meant a lot to me but uh from here i think um the next thing for those of you who listen to the podcast in order uh dallas and i begin a 10-week series on the book of numbers uh and so it won't be a dialogue as it has been for ephesians here um him and i will take turns preaching um 10 different stories from that very wild part of the bible so looking forward to that but Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Dallas, for geeking out about Ephesians with me.
1: Anytime.